everyone. My name is Melody Barnes. I'm the Executive Vice President for Policy here at the Center for American Progress. And I want to thank you for coming early this morning, on a Monday morning, um, because I think we're going to have a very, very interesting and engaging conversation. Before we get started, the first thing I want to do is to thank my friend and colleague, Jessica Ahrens, who's the director of our Women's Reproductive Health and Rights Program here at the Center for taking on this topic, for working on this paper, and coordinating today's event. So thank you so much, Jess, for your hard work and your dedication to these issues. Now, as I know, most of you in this room are experts in some way on this topic, but I'm just going to take a few minutes to highlight some of the issues and then introduce the other panelists, and then we're going to engage in a conversation here and then draw you in so we can really have a good conversation that brings in your expertise as well. Um, as you know, assisted reproductive technologies really are, I think, the new frontier um, in terms of issues on reproductive health and rights. Um, for a long, long time, until very recently, most people, um, when they thought of childbearing, you would think of a child having two biological parents. And as a result, our family law was really based on and built on, you know, pardon the pun, but conceived around um, that premise. But now we've developed, um, because of ARTs, um, a new way of thinking about it. A child can have at least three biological parents, um, and then because of ART, can then go on to have three other people who could be thought of um, as having a right to parent that child. So for those of you who are parents who already think your lives are complicated, imagine all the complications um, and all the issues raised by assisted reproductive technologies. And that's what we want to talk about today because this new technology has really led us to think in a new way about who we are as individuals, who we are as in terms of families, as our society, who society in fact thinks of is, as being eligible to in fact parent. Those kinds of decisions are being made as well. And as a result of that, um, and because for years, and starting um, with, you know, I remember growing up and hearing about the first test tube baby, and that was, what, over 30 years ago, um, because of what's happened over the last three decades, um, people are moving forward, and people's lives are changing. People are, are building and developing families around this technology, which is really wonderful. But at the same time, the law hasn't caught up with that. Um, in large part with regard, with, with, with regard to except a few states, for the most part this is unregulated. Um, and the states that are making these decisions are making decisions in such a way that they're having long-term ramifications, serious ramifications on a range of individuals. And everything from abortion to adoption to health insurance to inheritance are being um, affected by these decisions. In fact, I remember recently I was talking to some of my colleagues here about this issue and about today's program and they were saying you know what talking about the issues and I said well you know what what kind of law is governing in this area is it family law is it constitutional law is it property law and you could see everyone's eyes getting larger and people saying you know these issues really are here for us now they're front and center and we need to talk about them um, we need to think about in fact um, what happens to embryos and the, fight, the fact that the right to procreate and the right not to procreate are in fact um, at tension with one another and where do we stand on those issues. Um, surrogacy often provides gay men the only opportunity they have to parent but we also need to be concerned about the rights and protections for the surrogates, many of whom live just below the poverty line. And then some health insurance plans only um, cover or don't cover um, infertility for services that only apply to women 
And the question is raised by that, whether or not this is sex discrimination. So there are all these really interesting questions that are being raised. And as we raise them, as we talk about them, as we decide what to do, we want to make sure that all of the parties that are implicated by these decisions are, in fact, at the table. Now, many of you may have read a report that Jessica also wrote um, about a little over a year ago um, called More Than a Choice, A Progressive Vision for Reproductive Health and Rights. And in that report, we raised a series of questions, but we also laid out what we perceived to be important progressive values, um, the, important, the ability to become a parent, the ability to parent with dignity, um, the ability to determine whether and when you're going to have children, um, the ability to have a healthy pregnancy, and also to have he healthy and safe family relationships. And we think all of those issues are also implicated in the discussion that we're going to have about ARTs. So I don't want to spend much longer talking to you. Um, I just wanted to lay out some of the issues that I think are important um, and that we want to discuss today. And the fact that we believe that these decisions aren't just important to um, women, they aren't just important to the progressive community, but they're important for the entire country. And we want to make sure that our values are brought to bear as, we, as the country starts to grapple with them. I want to now introduce the members of the panel, and as I said, we're going to engage in a conversation first and then make sure that we have ample time so that you can ask questions and make comments as well. Um, Jessica, who's sitting immediately to my left, is, I as I said, the director of the Women's Health and Rights Program here at the Center for American Progress. And prior to working here, she was a staff attorney fellow with the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project. So thank you to Jessica. Um, and then next to Jessica, we have Jacqueline Payne, who's the Director of Government Relations for Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And she's responsible for devising PPFA's public, excuse me, public policy agenda and creating strategies and leveraging the power of Planned Parenthood's more than 4 million activists and supporters nationwide. And then next to Jackie is Miriam Young, who's currently the Director of Public Policy and Government Relations at the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center. And she's responsible for advocacy, community education, and government relations. But starting February 1st, Miriam will be the Executive Director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. So if you would join me in welcoming the members of our panel. Um, and before we get started in our conversation, I'd just like Jessica to speak for a few minutes about the report that she wrote. Well, thank you so much, Melody, for that great introduction. Uh, I think it really sets up the issues well for us today for the conversation we're going to have. Um, of course, I'd like to thank everyone for coming today, um, and especially our panelists. I think we're going to have a great conversation. I'd also like to thank anyone who um, provided input, read earlier drafts of the report, and gave me some critical feedback along the way. And, um, and then finally, of course, I want to thank everyone at CAP who helped to make this report and today's event possible. So as Melody indicated, there are numerous reasons why we wanted to produce this report. Um, you know, of course, we did see this as kind of a next generation set of issues around reproductive rights. Um, and we saw how they implicated all the cornerstones that we discussed in the More Than a Choice paper last year, as Melody said. And um, we basically really see this as an opportunity to expand our understanding of what reproductive rights in this country means and how we think about it and what the, you know, kind of a more nuanced approach that we'd like to take and a more expansive approach to talking and thinking about reproductive rights, health, and justice. Um, but uh, the specific impetus for this report, I think, came from the fact that as I was having conversations with a lot of different groups, trying to develop some positions around some of these technologies, uh, I found myself questioning, uh, you know, not really knowing what um, already had occurred in this area. You know, what, 
what legislative and other legal developments had happened. And um, I really thought it was important to be able to answer those questions and to have kind of a baseline level of knowledge, a foundation that um, everyone could then you know, start from the same page and build upon. Um, and then finally, also, I, um, I, you know, there are still some groups who, who I think should be considering these issues, and it still hasn't really landed on their radar, or they haven't had the resources to devote to it. And so this is another opportunity, I think, to raise awareness around these issues and, and get more people engaged in a conversation about them. Um, when I started the research for this paper, I think initially I was looking for evidence of um, conservatives using regulation of reproductive technologies to further their own agenda and to further restrict abortion rights in this country and to otherwise impose their worldview through the law. Um, and I did find some evidence of that. Probably the most striking, is, some of you are familiar with a, a law in Louisiana that provides rights to frozen embryos. Um, it basically says that frozen embryos cannot be intentionally destroyed um, for any reason. They um, have rights to sue or be sued in court. And um, couples that create these embryos either have to use them for their own procreative purposes or put them up for quote unquote adoptive implantation. So I think you see there in that kind of an example of what can happen if um, extreme con social conservatives are involved in the process around these issues and, and uh, what the influence that they can have uh, when they do so. And we're not part of that debate. Um, but uh, you know, well, before I go on, I, I, I did find other examples as well. Um, for instance, with health insurance coverage of infertility services, uh, a handful of states have religious exemptions for insurers or employers. So there, um, you know, we see kind of a familiar type of legislation that we've seen around other reproductive rights issues. We've seen it applied now around reproductive technologies. And then I also found a whole host of statutes that provided protections, but only for married couples. So it kind of runs the gamut in, in what you might define as conservative perspectives and, and influence on legislation. Um, but the good news is that there's not a lot out there yet uh, that they've done. And I think that there's a real opportunity here for progressives to be involved and proactive and engaged and, and be prepared. I mean, one of the reasons I produced the report was in the hopes that we could better prepare ourselves so that we can develop our positions and be out front on these issues and really provide guidance. And I think there are a lot of legislatures and courts looking for guidance on what to do with these technologies. Um, so ultimately, I decided to focus on where the law had developed the most, and those areas are health insurance, uh, state statutes that require health insurance coverage of infertility services, fights over uh, frozen embryos and what should happen to frozen embryos, um, and parentage determinations with surrogacy contracts, and also with posthumous conception, where frozen sperm or eggs or embryos are used after at least one genetic parent has passed away. Um, I do want to acknowledge, though, that um, this paper, the, the, again, it only covers where the law has substantively developed. So that's not to say that there aren't a lot of other issues around reproductive technologies that are important and that we need to address. Um, and we may have mentioned them in a sidebar or a footnote, but, but they're not uh, the focus of this paper. The paper is not meant to be comprehensive in that regard. Um, so to give you a very quick snapshot of what I found, and I'm not going to get into all the details. You can read the report if you're really interested. Uh, but the highlights are that 14 states have uh, required uh, health insurers to provide coverage or to offer coverage of health insurance, uh, I'm sorry, infertility services. Um, 
And of those states, four impose age limits of one kind or another. Rhode Island imposes age limits only for women, which I thought was interesting. Um, five states uh, offer coverage only for married couples, and of those five, four require only provide coverage if the married couples use their own sperm and, or, and eggs. So there's no coverage for uh, sperm and egg donation. Uh, only one state, Connecticut, requires uh, uh, puts a cap on the number of embryos that can be implanted, and it's two per cycle. Um, and as I mentioned, about half the states have religious exemptions of one kind or another. Um, some people have sued their employers uh, for violations of what they saw as violations of the American Disabilities Act, the um, Pregnancy Discrimination Act, or sex discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And um, no federal court has found a violation yet where uh, infertility services have not been covered in one way or another by an employer health plan. Um, with frozen embryos, um, only one state, Florida, requires couples to indicate what they want to happen to their embryos that are, are not used um, before they begin treatment. There are about five states that require couples to be given information so that they can make an informed decision about what should happen with their embryos, but they don't actually have to indicate what happens before they begin their treatment. And um, six states' uh, highest courts have uh, adjudicated uh, disputes between couples over their embryos. And in every case so far, the person opposing use of the embryos for procreation has won. Um, but that's not to say that that, I mean, courts have been pretty reluctant to establish a bright line rule that the, that person would win in every situation. So that's still somewhat up in the air. And then finally with surrogacy, 18, rather 17 states and the District of Columbia have passed some sort of law around surrogacy contracts. And it ranges from bans, outright prohibitions um, and penalties to uh, just voiding the contracts, meaning that the courts won't be able to enforce those contracts. Some states attach penalties as well, but most just void them. And then on the other end, you've got states that um, allow the surrogacy contracts but regulate them in some way. So maybe they only allow gestational surrogacy where the woman carrying the child is not genetically related to the child. Or maybe they only allow traditional surrogacy or they require prior court approval or a home study or a medical evaluation of the parties or counseling. Um, they might require the intended mother, the woman who is intended to raise the child as the legal mother, to show that she cannot carry or bear a child herself. So they really are kind of all over the map. And uh, again, we've got all the information in the report. So um, that's a lot of information, so hopefully you will take the time to look it over yourself and absorb it uh, when you have a little more time. But what I would say is probably when I was working on the report, the most difficult thing for me was actually coming up with conclusions <laughs> and offering solutions. And that's hard because we're this you know, think tank that's supposed to have big, bold, progressive new ideas and solutions. Um, and so I really, you know, I felt this compulsion to have specific suggestions about, well, we should have this kind of legislation or that. And if you read the report, you'll see that in a lot of places we answer, and we raise a lot more questions than we answer. But I think that in this context, it's appropriate and I think it's the right thing to do that we don't want to jump ahead. We don't want to have a knee-jerk reaction. I think we need to be deliberative. Uh, we need to really be thoughtful and intentional in a process of developing our positions around these technologies. And I do think reproductive justice provides a really excellent frame and really helps, it could be very helpful for us in this process because it allows, for those of you who may not be familiar with the term, reproductive justice combines 
rep traditional reproductive rights values and social justice concerns and looks both at individual interests as well as the family, community, and societal interests involved. And I think that it provides us kind of with a broader frame and helps us recognize the differing perspectives um, and that different stakeholders uh, have different things um, at stake uh, with these technologies. And so it provides us with the opportunity to balance those um, a little bit more. Um, it, as Melody indicated in her introduction, uh, you know, I think that she, she brought up some good examples of, of where these interests may compete with, um, you know, gay men who have an opportunity to, you know, be biological parents and at the same time concern about uh, the health and well-being of the women whose reproductive services are enlisted in that process. Um, you know, how do we want to spend limited resources? Is it on treating infertility or on treating the causes of infertility? Um, do we want to focus on expanding equitable access to reproductive technologies or do we want to focus on gaining greater access to basic healthcare services in this country? And I think that the, the, the stark disparities we see based on class and race and gender and sexual orientation and a lot of other characteristics are very striking in our country and, and further complicate the terrain around reproductive technologies. Um, and finally, even sometimes our values may seem to be intention. Um, we, um, you know, we list several values at the beginning of the report that we hope people will keep in mind as they read the report. And uh, we've got procreative liberty and right after that social justice. And that was a little intentional because I do think that they can bump up against each other. Um, you know, some, some people like bioethicist John Robertson would uh, interpret procreative liberty as expansively as possible, allowing for people to do anything they want reproductively as long as, well, just, just whatever they want to do as long as they have others' consent. And um, regardless of the effect on offspring, regardless of the effect on society generally, and I might not interpret it quite as broadly, um, and I think it can be tempered by social justice concerns, but I don't think you need to discard one value in order to hold on to the other. I think that it's appropriate to recognize you know, that gamut and, and to, to find some sort of balance. Um, but if left unaddressed, I think these tensions could be divisive and corrosive and damaging. And so I think that, again, there is a real need to educate ourselves and to be prepared and to develop uh, our thoughts around this and, and to ensure that a lot of different perspectives are at the table when doing so, so that we can reach some sort of consensus. Um, so I don't think reproductive justice necessarily gives us a straightforward, simple answer, but I do think that it provides us with the tools we need to do the work that we have to do. Um, some of this can be really overwhelming when people start to uh, become aware of the issues and the implications, um, but I do think that ultimately um, this work is possible, a compromise is possible, but I also think compromise is necessary in order to move forward in this field. Um, but I do think ultimately that the work we do on this now will really pay off for us in the future. So, thank you. Great. Thank you, Jessica. And Jackie and Miriam, I <coughs> excuse me, want to give you all an opportunity to jump in and to respond to some degree to what you've heard Jessica say by asking you the question, how have you, I mean, thinking about your own personal experience in work, um, as well as that of your organizations, how have you come to view these issues and start, how have you and your organization started to work on these issues? Or Jackie, if you want to, to start. So thanks for having us and thanks for that report. People really should read it. It's a good reference to have. Um, so I'm with Planned Parenthood. 
and uh, hopefully you know us, but we are the leading reproductive health care provider and advocate in the country. We have 860 health centers across the country in 49 of the 50 states. So um, well before my time at Planned Parenthood, um, we first addressed this from a reproductive health perspective. Um, folks brought in bioethicists and tried to understand the technology. A handful of our clinics do do fertility work. Some do research work. And so they were beginning to grapple with these issues just to understand the lay of the land. Um, when I arrived, we um, took this up under the rubric of reproductive justice. Um, first in 2005 at the Reproductive Justice for All conference that Planned Parenthood um, put on with um, the Women's Studies Department at Smith College, and I see several of you who attended that. Um, and so at that conference, we, it was a, um, a group of academics, activists, um, very diverse, about uh, half, a little less than half were Planned Parenthood Health Center folks, and then about half were activists and organizers from across the country. Um, and folks were given the opportunity to go into one of four areas and um, really explore that area, both from an academic perspective and then looking, using our reproductive justice framework, analyzing the existing policies and laws. So one of those areas was around uh, reprogenetics. Um, and we brought in uh, Sujata Jasudesan, who I'm sure many of you know, from the, Gener the Center for Genetics and um, Society. Um, and she helped to really um, develop that area. She's, I think, one of the foremost experts in the field on this issue. And so she helped bring in the right speakers and frame the issue and allowed people at that conference to really um, begin to um, grapple with what are the emerging uh, questions um, to understand the science a little bit at that time um, and to look and analyze the policies as they uh, were emerging. Um, out of that conference, the general consensus was a feeling of being totally overwhelmed, underprepared, um, in, uh, just um, some ignorance around what the science and technology was and just like trying to wrap your head around it. It's easier for Miriam because she's science-y. For the rest of us, it's like, what are they saying? You have to draw a picture. Um, she'll actually draw you pictures if you ask her to. It helps. Um, and so um, just to, you know, a real feeling of like, this is emerging, the laws and policies are coming, we have to get ahead of it, um, and it is huge and complex. And so um, a real feeling that uh, uh, immediate work needed to be done. Um, combined with a feeling of if we are to do this differently, we are going to have to um, address what's happened historically in the um, reproductive rights and choice movement, and how do you bring people to the table, how do you build trust, and how do you behave differently going forward. And so in an effort to, um, to do that, uh, Planned Parenthood partnered with the Center for Genetics and Society in the fall of 2006. We put on an intimate retreat for women leaders um, from the reproductive health rights, um, civil rights, um, disability, LGBT, um, which one? Indigenous indigenous communities. Um, and it was a pretty small group of folks, all of whom are represented, you know, some of whom are represented here, um, to, to really begin that process. And so we started with um, identifying our own individual um, experience with reprogenetics. And so, so many of the folks in the room were women in their 30s and early 40s who were, um, had grown up thinking about this as a, maybe either uh, the primary way of reproduction or as a um, promised backstop if things didn't work out and you ended up a little bit later down the road, we'd work it out, you know. And so we'd all sort of realized that we were personally connected to this issue, that we, we have friends and family or ourselves were 
uh, thinking about exploring the technologies. And so we already have a personal stake in this. Then there was the, um, a need to understand the science and, and sort of what is out there. And then to think about how will our own organizations address this. For most of us, our organizations hadn't addressed it. Um, because it is so overwhelming, and we have a lot on our plates, and there are things that maybe are, for depending on the different communities, seem a little bit more core than this. Uh, and so folks felt like, oh my God, let someone else figure it out. Tell me where I should be, and I'll be there down the road. But I, I can't invest this much in such a complex thing. So we spent some time really trying to understand um, what the possible emerging issues were and how our organizations would um, traditionally react to it. What would our knee-jerk reaction be? Um, and so I think of it as, uh, in the absence of anything else, what would our trajectory, where would that bring us? So if we behave just as we have in the past, what would our likely reaction be to all the laws and policies that are coming out? Um, and so we started there. What would our sort of knee-jerk reaction be? And when we talked cross-community about where were, where were we going to end up in conflict if we all kept going from those directions? Um, where does the um, traditional um, individual rights and choice perspective um, conflict with the disability rights interests um, or from a, um, a racial justice and eugenics perspective. And so we just kind of began in a really safe space looking at where was there going to be possible conflict. Um, and there was quite a bit of possible conflict if we keep going the way we're going. And the sense that we would be dividing up the pie and um, in our individual communities never, we might be trying to get to reproductive justice or environmental justice or economic justice, but that we, we were never going to get there because we weren't going for social justice. We weren't going together to try to arrive at what a holistic justice perspective looks like. Um, so I think it's sort of that you would never get to reproductive justice if you weren't doing it that way, but sort of that's of what we were looking at. So in that um, dialogue, we really tried to lay out what is the future of this conversation um, and how can we do it differently? How can we do cross-movement work? Um, that will help us um, get to the right answers, ultimately. Um, and so we continue down that path now um, to, to take the time to work cross-movement, to try to really give people the opportunity to take the information in, to explore it, to identify the conflicts, and then not to be stuck there, but to think, um, accepting where we are now and what we hold dear and what we want to protect, um, what different path might we take going forward that could be um, better for everybody? So I'm going to stop there because I know we're going to have a whole dialogue, but that's sort of where I think we are in the process. Thanks a lot, Jackie. Miriam, what about you and, and your organization? What work have you all been doing? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And a great paper, Jessica. I think it was a, a very well um, put together document and a useful tool in this dialogue. Um, you know, I come from this from a lot of different places, and lately I've been re-owning my science side, so I, I want to start there. As a student of science, uh, my family and I immigrated here when I was two, and like a good immigrant family, my parents wanted me to be a doctor. So I spent a lot of time taking science classes, was pre-med, all of that stuff, and um, uh, then became an activist to their heartbreak. <laughs> an LGBT activist, <laughs> add that. So... Um, you know, my background was uh, is is mixed in that way. I have all of this knowledge, um, and when I read the word embryo, I was talking to Jackie earlier. I was like, "What do you see in your head when you when you read the word embryo? Do you do you see a little fetus, or do you see a little chicken egg, or 
What do you see? And in reality, what we're talking about is a bundle of 4, 8, 16, 32 cells, right? Like something that you can't actually even see is what we're talking about. So um, that's the picture I want to put in people's head uh, as we move forward in the conversation. Uh, so my activist work has been with the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Community Center, where I've been there for uh, 10 years. And for us, we come to this work in two ways. One, we have long... Uh, honored and helped LGBT people fulfill their uh, destinies as parents and as families and have um, worked in revolutionary ways to, to um, you know, support LGBT adults in having children or forming other family formations. Um, and so we, uh, you know, started maybe 16 years ago and it was literally in kind of peer-based conversations that we facilitated that helped adults come to understand uh, what sort of adoption uh, policies were open to them, where in the international market could they go to if they wanted to have a child, um, if they were in co-parenting relationships, how they could protect themselves legally, um, how, what are the assisted reproductive technologies that are available. So that's where we started. And then the second place that we come to this is through a cross-movement lens. Um, as, a, as, we would, as a pro-choice progressive agency, the LGBT Community Center has had a, a, a feminist pro-choice position since the 1980s. We discovered that we kept losing in public policy battles because we were still operating from our individual silos. But in reality, the LGBT community and the pro-choice community in particular have very core principles at heart. You know, the, the right to privacy, the you know, how Lawrence v. Texas is predicated on Roe v. Wade and other um, traditional reaper rights doctrines. Um, and we have the same kind of enemies out there who were bashing both of us on this kind of family va values wagon for a long time. So uh, five years ago, we started a project called Causes in Common, which was about increasing dialogue and building working alliances between the reproductive rights and LGBT communities. And I'm happy to say that today it's a you know thriving coalition of over 125 organizations around the country who are dedicated to working together, uh, both locally, statewide, and federally. So within those two places, I really have to echo what Jackie said, that um, we're at a moment now where things are more complex than ever, and um, I, for one, would rather have more of that complexity than not, right? That um, Individual choices are often complex, right? And I, I would really hesitate to say we have either or questions now as you kind of started to do, like um, whose rights trumps whose or the right to procreate versus the, not, the right not to procreate. That in reality, when we look at those simple frames, that um, they're, they're way more complex and a lot more is embedded with them. And this is the opportunity for us to work in cross-movement settings to get more of the nuance and to get more of... Uh, the stories behind, because I think as, um, you know, your document is a really important survey of the statutory and legal landscape, we have a lot more other data that we don't know, and a lot more stories that we need to hear and gather before we can have some uh, consensus or even compromise. Jackie and Miriam, both of you, you talked, you know, very eloquently about the work that you and your organizations have been doing and about the cross-movement work, and you've talked some about the, some of the tensions. 
And at the end, Miriam, you were also talking about some of the opportunities. And I was wondering if you all could both um, elaborate on that a little bit more. I mean, where do you see the opportunity as we go forward with all this information, what we know, but as you were saying also, all this information that exists out there that we haven't quite, quite wrapped our arms around. And doing that, as Jackie said, I mean, I think all of us in the room feel it, there's so much going on. We have so much on our plates right now, but, but what are the opportunities here? major opportunity we have is that much of what we're talking about, even though uh, you lay the case that there's a lot we have to figure out now, that there's a lot more on the horizon that has yet to hit us, right? That the, the paper focused only on assisted reproductive technologies, but those are often used in tandem with genetic technologies, for instance, which are, uh, if you think ARTs are complicated, I mean, uh, the next step is even more so. So our opportunity is to um, take this moment before we are hit with it and barraged with it to think um, and to explore in coalition and in good faith and with best interest all of the communities we as progressives want to care about, right? That the progressive community is not monolithic. It's made up of lots of different individuals and uh, uh, different movements. And for us, I, I personally am most excited about doing a cross-movement process for this topic because we do have an opportunity to build a stronger progressive movement out of it, right? One that is more um, cohesive and one that is uh, building the linkages that will endure beyond this conversation but on to all the other conversations that we will need to have. Yeah, I would just totally add to that. I mean, my own growth in the last two years as a result of this topic has been amazing. Like the, what I've learned about the disability community, their perspective, how they, how this, not only this issue to hit them, just, but just um, sort of um, their perspective um, on certain things. As, you know, I, I felt so ignorant when I started and I thought, like, how could I not know that that's the way they talk about this? And, and you know, I've been saying the wrong thing, <laughs> like, you know. And so just ha having this opportunity to have dialogue with other communities um, and understand um, their perspective has been fabulous. Um, and then I think um, I, it's both an opportunity and a risk. I think that we what we're trying to do is to build this broader coalition and, and see how we can all sort of win as we go forward. I think that um, it's also scary to folks because there is, when you're having this discussion and you see that there's conflict, there is the possibility of um, uh, potentially losing some ground. It could be viewed as losing some ground for the greater good. And I think it's important for us to be, to create a, a a real safe space to have the discussion and think about what does the redefining the win I think it, that's probably what it is it's redefining the win and thinking about how do we potentially from the reproductive rights perspective um, not look solely at individual rights um, but look at um, community and social responsibility um, and um, understanding the win differently that way so I think there's a huge opportunity for that I want to draw Jessica in um, as well, each of you, I think, has touched on um, the reproductive, reproductive justice frame. And I want to go a little bit deeper into that part of the conversation as to why we think that is the right frame for this, for this conversation. Why is that so important here? And what are the, you know, the competing ways um, of looking at this issue? 
think that um, the reproductive justice frame allows us to ask the bigger questions, right? And to and it gets us out of our our narrow way of thinking and our narrow niches, and that it honors the way that we don't lead single-issue lives, none of us, right? And we all are more complex than our stereotypes, right? Like that, it really just honors the true experiences that we all have in the room by asking questions that are way bigger than we would traditionally ask. So instead of saying, you know, individual rights versus, you know, private property or et cetera, et cetera, we, we can think about what are all the factors that play into my life, your life, everyone's lives, you know, uh, social factors, community-based factors, uh, identity-based factors, all of those things, um, and to, to have more of a real picture. I think it allows us to paint a realer picture of what people's experiences are. So I think an example of that yeah. that we were talking about was um, the, the struggle about um, insurance coverage for fertility and what conversation should we be having with respect to that. And I think the traditional conversation that a reproductive rights frame would be would be to look at um, sort of non-discrimination within insurance coverage. So that you would, the entire discussion would be around the fact that the existing insurance laws um, have res restrictions with respect to your marital status, your age, whether you're a desirable parent. And the, the answer would be you should make sure that uh, insurance coverage for fertility um, doesn't have any of those, uh, any of that discrimination, and then you would be done. I think under a reproductive justice framework, you're, you step back and you say, "What are we, what are we talking about? What, why are we focused, or are we having this sort of argument within this narrow context? What's going on with the fact that 47 million people are uninsured? Um, why are we allowing ourselves to have a conversation that's stuck in this little box instead of in the in looking at the bigger picture? And will it bring everybody to?" Um, to step back and say, you know, we all need to be working on um, uh, ensuring that everyone has access to quality, affordable health care. Another uh, advantage of the reproductive justice framework is that it allows us to recognize somewhat competing arguments, um, but that you know that have equal value and merit, and and you know then have a deeper conversation about those arguments to try to find a, a way to resolve them. The, what the tension is, for instance. Um, with uh, egg donation or surrogacy, um, I've heard uh, very good arguments on both sides that on the one hand, um, you know, these are services that women are providing. They shouldn't be expected to be altruistic. They should be compensated for their services. Um, and that, you know, we just need to provide them with enough information so that they can provide informed consent and then, you know, they can be on their merry way. And on the other hand, uh, and uh, that I think would be a more feminist, traditional feminist or reproductive rights perspective, and that um, the uh, social justice or reproductive justice perspective also says, well, okay, so as Melody mentioned, a lot of surrogates live right around the poverty line. Uh, you know, if, if we're paying a lot of money for someone to do this and they can't make that money in another way, is, is that coercive? Is that somehow exploitative? Um, we, we're seeing a lot of reproductive tourism now in that, you know, for instance, uh, women here in the United States are using, uh, well, not just women, people here in the United States are using women in India as surrogates, for example, and it, it's a, a lot cheaper to pay for a surrogate in India than here, and yet that's a lot of money that that woman may not see otherwise um, and provides her with opportunities to do things for her family. Um, so. How, you know, how, how are we going to think about that? What's our position going to be? And, and what's 
the progressive perspective on that. Um, it's not necessarily so easy, but I think the reproductive justice frame allows us to put forth those multiple arguments and, and not say, well, we have to adhere to one part particular perspective. Um, and we can find some way to compromise or balance between those. You know, all of you know, this conversation about a framework in furtherance of our values, in furtherance of the kind of policies that we want to see put in place, and it raises the, qu the question about regulation in this area. In some ways, Jackie, goes to what you were talking about, the concerns that um, we have historically and from a reproductive health perspective about regulation, but we're also seeing this new frontier and all the kinds of questions that you've raised um, sitting out there. How should we be thinking about regulation? I mean, it's happening in various states, as Jessica mentioned. You know, what do we, what do we want to encourage and what do we want to discourage and how do we balance those concerns against a historical um, backdrop that has, as I said, raised significant worries about regulation in the states and in the states only. What do we want to do on the federal level? I think we need a lot more information, period. And that when we think about regulation, we probably all have a different image in our heads, too, about what that might mean and a knee-jerk kind of reaction to what that word is. Um, I, you know, I think that we might find broad consensus in uh, some forms of regulation that require more data reporting, for example. You know, how many frozen embryos are there? What were the genetic parents of those embryos? How did they come to be cryogenically frozen at any time? Um, the paper talks about, uh, you know, folks who expire their contracts at cryobanks. What happens to those embryos? How many times have it, has it happened? Um, how many surrogates are there? Is that a way, is there a way we can quantify that? Um, what are the long-term health risks for uh, women who undergo egg extraction, you know, as a part of um, cryobanking or egg freezing? Those are all questions that we don't have answers to. And then, you know, on the ground, because I work at a community-based organization, we hear really complex stories, too, um, that I want to get more out of and to, um, and to really collect and analyze and look at. So examples of... Um, you know, surrogacy arrangements where gay men then incorporate the surrogate into their family, you know, and they're at the holidays coming up and that they um, are really members of their family in, in a huge way. What do we do with those stories? Um, and what do we do with, you know, some women who could use their own eggs but don't and have a, an egg donor and carry in, in a lesbian couple, right, so that neither women are genetic parents of a child. Um, those, they're there are, I think, infinite ways for us to be families and to have families, and I, I hope that uh, this is also an opportunity to broaden and think about um, how we understand families and what are the laws that govern families, right? And are they true to, true to what people's experiences really are, too? Do you have a, go ahead. Regulation certainly um, can be something that um, makes me a little nervous with, uh, given the history with reproductive rights in this country and how it's been over-regulated, in my opinion. Um, and I do think that, you know, uh, a lot of times our instinct is, oh, we, we don't want something to happen, we're going to have to regulate it. And I, I think that's a mistake that the conservative movement has made, um, that they have sought regulation every time that they find something morally troubling. Um, I think that um, some regulation is 
more regulation is going to be necessary to a certain extent. Certainly in terms of parentage determinations, courts need guidelines. They need more guidelines. Every case I read ended with a plea that legislatures take some action and provide um, guideposts along the way. Um, it's not to say that a statute is going to be able to resolve every dispute, but it is going to provide some presumptions, some, gu you know, some guidance, and I think that that will be helpful for courts as these types of complex family situations continue to arise and need to be adjudicated sometimes. Um, I also think that regulation can provide some stability and some um, advanced knowledge, some sort of warning system to the people who want to use reproductive technologies so that they know if they do this, this will happen to their embryos. If they do that, this will happen. And you know that this is what they can expect or not expect to happen. And that in that way, it can hopefully um, avoid some of the disputes that might otherwise arise. So I do think some regulation is going to be useful and necessary. On the other hand, um, there are some areas where, you know, for instance, maybe with embryo deselection, um, there are some, you know, selection for or against certain traits that uh, we may feel uh, troubled by. And I'm not as sure whether regulation is the right approach or whether more education is appropriate. So I think that there are other ways we can work with the communities and the families using these technologies with the clinics that provide these services to um, come up with solutions that are, are alternatives to regulation. So I do think we need to keep that in mind, that there are a lot of partners that we want to enlist in this process, and you know, we're not always going to have the same uh, solution for every problem. I would also think that education would be important um, for the public, for policymakers as well. I mean, I just think sitting on as a Senate staffer on the floor and you know having members struggle with what's an abortifacient. I mean, and it's just you know having a base of knowledge so that when we're starting to make forward strides in this area, that people have some kind of foundation on which they're making determinations and, and evaluating because, as I said, just in the conversations I've had with um, friends about this, and, you know, Jackie, you were talking about this as well. I mean, people get very wide-eyed at it, um, and I think that that would be helpful and a companion to the kind of uh, regulatory conversations that you're talking about. Um, I want to ask you all one more question, and then I'm going to ask you all, give you all the opportunity to ask questions as well, so be thinking about those. Um, but the question I want to ask you all, in thinking about the paper that Jessica has writ written and what um, is an appropriate set of next steps, I mean, do you think that we should be focused on some of uh, the, well, the areas that Jessica wrote about, which tend to be the more um, regulated in terms of what the states are doing right now, or really expend our resources into some of the areas where there's been less focus um, and less regulation up to now? I guess, um, and this builds a little bit on the last question as well, and with respect to how much regulation should there be, what should we do about it, I feel like it, it is beginning to happen in the states, um, and it is incumbent on all of us who are here to take some responsibility for being educated, for participating in the process, and for, I hope, engaging in this so that we can avoid what we, you know, the conflict is going to come unless we all try to get in, engaged now, educated, and, and have, be in these dialogues. Um, otherwise, you can see the writing on the wall. I can tell you where the reproductive rights movement will go. You know, all can tell me where your different movements will go, and we can see the conflict coming. So I hope that knowing that it's coming will um, inspire people to self-educate and get involved. Um, as we see the regulations happening or we're thinking about policies, I also hope that we'll 
um, really be looking at um, who's benefiting from it, which, which communities, you know, who's losing from it. Um, if you look, start from the perspective of marginalized communities, understand the impact on them, um, and, and for the reproductive folks not to um, immediately go to what is my individual right, what is my individual choice, and my autonomy, but thinking about um, doing an analysis that asks the questions about um, the, the sort of implications and the impact of it. And I was thinking about the stem cell debate and just how really the whole debate is on um, the value of the science and what can be gained from it and such a small part of the debate and only in like two states or has there really been this discussion about um, on whose back is that going to happen? Um, who is who's giving the material? Whose body is you know being used for this? Um, what are the risks and benefits to them? Where is the data on that? Um, when a, a cure is developed for something, will, will their children or their grandchildren benefit from it, or will only the insured? And they'll be part of the you know by then what 65 million uninsured? You know, so thinking about the the biggest picture possible as we look at regulation. Um, and, and not just doing it, sort of following the trajectory that we're on. Um, so the, I think for me what that means is um, focusing on uh, understanding what the health implications are and having that different kind of dialogue. Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved. I, I would say that, um, you know, it's probably, the answer is probably both. You know, there, I think that what we need to do is think about what our priorities are. We have to figure out what, e you know, either what, what do we see as the low-hanging fruit and easy to, you know, accomplish in the near future, or what we see as kind of the big-ticket items that we really want to address. Um, and some of those may be in the areas that are already somewhat regulated, and some of it could be a reaction to the laws that have already been developed. Uh, and others are going to be in areas that are, are unaddressed yet in the legislative realm and, and in the courts. So. Um, I think we're going to see movement in both areas, um, and it just it really depends on you know setting the priorities for ourselves, defining those priorities, and and then moving our agenda forward. Well, if you have a question, please raise your hand and give us your name and organization, and we have a microphone for you as well. It'll just help with uh, the video pur for purposes of our video. Question over here. Hi, I'm Sean Tipton with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. First, I want to say thanks to the Center for continuing to remind us that reproductive policy doesn't begin and end with pregnancy termination. Uh, I think that's a tremendous service, and, and I think the summary of issues and particularly the statutory charts are going to be wonderful for me. So, <laughs> so I appreciate that very much. I, I think a couple things that, that need to be said. The first is on regulation. I think that while the social aspects, including parentage significantly, and some of the commercial aspects are not heavily regulated, I mean, governments generally are not saying who can avail themselves to these services, how and why, uh, the medical field is actually quite heavily regulated. So we have state licensure of all the professionals who interact with patients, so physicians, nurses, and mental health people. The FDA approves all the drugs and devices that are used. The FDA has regulations about how to screen and test for those people who are going to be tissue donors and how to take care of the tissue. Um, unlike most fields, you can get a lot of great outcomes data. So the CDC requires all the clinics to report their outcomes data to the federal government, which is a unique resource in this field. So I think the medical aspects are, are pretty heavily regulated. And, and so we get bothered by the, 
the term unregulated field, of, uh, unregulated industry. So maybe the industry is the field of medicine is in fact regulated. Uh, I think a couple policy things that are real important that, that got left out. One is uh, the inability of federally funded scientists to work with human embryos. Since night, really forever, the current manifestation has been the Dickie Wicker Amendment that has been added as an appropriations rider since 1995, which prohibits federally funded scientists from working with this material, which means you cannot get a grant to look at something like what happens to the embryo in its fairly earliest stages, and particularly implantation, which creates lots of problems for treatment, which is the reason we have more embryos than are needed. The reason for all this, this discussion down the road is at least partly because we don't understand how to do this, so you make more embryos than you need. And I think that's a, an immediate policy discussion that really needs some attention. <clears throat> and then more generally, I think that um, I, I think the other thing we're going to continue to see are, are uh, lots of efforts to restrict egg donation or restrict compensation for egg donation by the states. And I do think that comes out primarily out of an opposition to stem cell research or research using these, these embryos that may result from that. And I think it's very, I think we need to be very careful because if in fact we acknowledge it or a, a legitimate right of the government to intervene and to control what women do with their eggs is established, it's going to be really hard logically to say that that does not, that interest on the part of government does not extend into dealing with the woman when she's pregnant. Thank you. Are there any comments or responses to that before we go on? Okay. I think the egg donation piece, um, you know, there's some exciting work on the ground level to look at uh, what that process has been, which women are getting recruited for egg donation. Uh, Choice USA is sitting in the audience, and I know they have a campus-based program that is looking at recruitment tactics on campuses and um, what are the pressures that bear on young women who have to make that decision. And within an RJ or reproductive justice framework, the questions are, how did we arrive in this society or this situation where this young woman has these kind of choices and uh, um, you know, has, to, has these pressures to donate her eggs or, or not? And what problems in her life does it solve or what problems does it create? So um, I, you know, in the effort of getting more info and getting more of the data that will help these conversations, I think there's exciting grassroots organizing that's going to give us those answers. I guess I would just say, I mean, um, that there are also other policies that we haven't discussed that are pending in the states. I don't know if now's a good time to bring those up. I mean, um, there are definitely, we, the paper does a good job of laying out some of them, specifically the limits on insurance coverage. We talked about that a little bit. Um, I think the fact that the um, even in the discussion about insurance coverage for uh, in vitro or infertility, um, the fact that we we are not going to see um, public funding for um, infertility, so that uh, lower income women won't have the same access to address their fertility. Um, where will that lead us? And will there be um, even more stratifi stratified reproduction um, that we're creating on two kinds of classes of people? The one who can afford to um, and they hate this, but design the babies <laughs> to the um, to, to you know to go for the better baby, the taller baby, the smarter baby, whatever it is, and then this other class who doesn't have access and whose reproduction is continues to be uh, discouraged or controlled. I think um, we see even more direct limits on the use of 
assisted reproduction technology, so not even about um, whether there will be funding or uh, payment for it, but who actually may use it. So last in 06 in Indiana, we saw a law proposed that would have um, uh, banned the use of ARTs by anyone, uh, by single people. Um, again, to really enforce the state's public policy of who is a desirable parent and who should be able to parent. So um, if you're not married by the state, so if you're single or in a um, uh, queer couple or whatever it is, that you wouldn't be even allowed to use these technologies. Um, we saw in this year in Virginia a ban on using unrelated donors um, through this process. So um, sort of the continuation of a control of who, who and how can folks reproduce. Um, we have been seeing uh, new kinds of abortion bans that are um, related to um, the reason that uh, the reason in, you would get an abortion and how you would find out about it. So specifically, um, that you couldn't have an abortion if it was based on information that you learned from genetic testing. Um, there was also that um, proposed legislation, the Act to Protect Homosexuals, that was um, designed to make sure that if a gay gene is developed, that you would be prohibited from aborting a, um, a fetus based on the fact that they're gay. Um, I, I'm sure that that was done to protect you. <laughs> um, so um, there was a proposal in North Dakota this year that would have banned public funds from being used for genetic testing. So this really does get into all the genetic testing stuff, but um, being used for genetic testing um, unless it was um, for a therapeutic use as a result. So it couldn't be used if it would end up um, in anything other than to for therapy for either the, the woman or the fetus. Um, so I think that there's this whole host of things. The two other things to mention are, I mean, I'm interested in seeing what comes out of Congress today in terms of what's in that um, budget bill with all of the things that we're cutting. Um, look for the line item on embryo adoptions being possibly increased. Um, what is that about? We could discuss that. And then the last one is in 08, um, there's any number of ballot initiatives that are related to this. Uh, three in particular in Georgia, Montana, and Colorado are about um, giving, just like the Louisiana law, um, giving um, a fertilized egg, irrespective of where it's located, um, the rights of a person. Um, and so that obviously has many more implications than uh, it may be driven by a desire to um, change the law on abortion, but it has so many more implications about um, fertility and you know, reproduction generally. So um, there is a lot going on. I didn't want anyone to think there wasn't. I just I think we just focused elsewhere. Yes. Hi, I'm Amy Alana from the National Women's Health Network, and. I had a question in my mind, um, but I'm going to kind of reformulate it to both disagree with Sean's comment and uh, also build on one of the things that he um, was asking you about. Um, the, the disagreement is that the health aspects of this are very heavily regulated. Um, uh, you know, while it's certainly true that the drugs that are used have been approved by the FDA for some purpose, in many, many cases, in fact, probably in the majority of cases, they haven't been approved for the purposes they're being used for or in the ways they're being used in ART. And the health implications of that are major. It means that we don't know what the health consequences for women using the drugs in the way they're being used are. 
and there's a really big hole there in terms of regulation. And then the other point is that because um, ART is not just about using a particular drug or using a particular device, but using it in, um, in a, the provision of a health service, it combines areas that are not easily regulated under our current system. Um, the FDA, which regulates the drugs, doesn't regulate the practice of medicine. And that means that, that um, a lot of what goes on in um, the use of ART is not subjected to the kind of rigorous study that one drug used for one particular purpose might be. And that goes to, the, to, to Sean's point about how there's a lot we don't know about what's going to happen. The excess, you, you made the point about how we create more embryos than we need because we don't know what the outcomes will be and we need them to try lots of different things. And so I wanted to ask all of you, Jessica in your research and, and um, Jackie and Miriam in your, um, you know, the dialogues that you've been a part of, whether there's been any creative ideas about how to get at this issue. I'm not suggesting that there shouldn't be off-label use of drugs under any circumstance or that um, the FDA should start regulating the practice of medicine, but are people coming up with ideas about how to get at that pro the problems that that creates? I know one of the things that we've been doing a lot of uh, within the cross-movement dialogues is before we answer what is the solution to the problem, we've been asking ourselves, what is, the, where, what is our common value that we're going to use to provide or create a solution? And that's really where the level of conversation has been. Um, you know, I think there's a, definitely a developmental model around learning about this stuff. As someone who's talked about it to a number of audiences, the first kind of gut response a lot of people have is Gattaca, right? They're like, oh, I get it. It's like Gattaca. It's like that Ethan Hawke movie, right? And that's because it's complex and complicated and brand new and it's science fiction-y. And, um, and then when people move from Gattaca, they then, they then understand it for themselves. Like, oh, yeah, I knew someone who did that. Or um, I know someone who... Uh, tried to get her husband's sperm extracted when his body was still warm when he had died. You know, like, like they start to, I know a surrogate or I know someone who's done that. And then we start to understand it from our organization and our movement, right? Like, how does this play politically and in a larger context? And only when we're there do we start even inviting other movements into the dialogue to say, how has what I understood to be true um, jive with the disability rights community, with the LGBT rights community, with uh, repro rights. Um, and only after we get all of those into the conversation will we even get to a place of saying, what's a solution that could work for all of us? I will say that um, in all the conversations I've been a part of and heard, I've never, I've, everyone agrees we need more information. Everyone wants more data collection and research. I don't think I've heard anyone say, oh, we know everything we need to know, <laughs> and it's fine. Um, and, and generally, I think people are okay with wanting to collect that data. I think there might be a little concern from people who work on abortion rights primarily that, 
Well, you know, we don't want to give ammunition to uh, further uh, record-taking, you know, responsibilities for clinics and getting into patients' private, you know, inf uh, information, medical information. But I do think generally there seems to be a lot of consensus around the need for more information on reproductive technologies and what their outcomes are and effectiveness and, and all of that. Um, I do think in the current political climate it's going to be very difficult to get any traction on rescinding the Dickie Wicker Amendment, um, but I do appreciate Sean raising it because I do think it's true that that um, doesn't get mentioned enough, and I obviously am guilty of that. Um, but it, it's a it's a helpful reminder that there um, that one of the reasons we don't have enough information is because of political restrictions on what can uh, what kind of uh, research can happen with embryos. Um, I know I saw a hand all the way in the back, and then I'll come back forward. Uh, my name is uh, David Oxter of the Research Institute for Independent Living, and uh, the information my organization gets is that the U.S. is uh, 41st in the world in infant mortality. There are 600,000 birth defects a year. Uh, Preterm pregnancies are going through the roof, and uh, so my question is, is there any uh, data on the uh, health and well-being of the children and the women as a result of art. I think we do have some of that information uh, already, uh, especially uh, with the advent of the increase in multiple pregnancies as a result of some ART practices, um, either having multiple embryos implanted um, or because of fertility drugs that uh, lead to uh, increased conception of, of multiple pregnancies. Um, and, and we know that that usually leads to preterm birth uh, other birth defects and a whole host of complications for the woman carrying those pregnancies. Um, so we are seeing some of that data, um, and uh, and in terms of the effectiveness of the um, the procedures like IVF or ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where the sperm is uh, in, uh, inserted directly into the uh, egg. Um, I know we've seen some research and studies come out about that. Um, but Sean is, or Susanna, I see in the audience too, may may have a little more information. Do you all want to address that first? I don't know if anyone else in the audience might have a response. But. And I think if we were to ask the broader question again, practicing using the reproductive justice frame is like, what are the social conditions that result in those facts that you've pointed out? You know, t I think toxicity levels in our environment has been huge, and that's one thing that. Uh, invites the environmental justice community into this dialogue as well. Okay. Uh, why don't we go with these three questions right here. Uh, hi, my name is Wendy Anderson, and I'm on the board of Choice USA, and I'm also with the Women in Harm Reduction uh, Program at the Open Society Institute. And I've worked on um, issues around uh, pregnancy and drug addiction, both domestically and internationally now. And... Um, so talking about complex issues when it comes to uh, mothering and parenthood um, and um, listening to you guys talk about building coalitions and talking about things on the front side is really exciting because I don't feel like we did that when it comes to um, drug, uh, you know, drug using pregnant women and, um, and uh, parenting women. So, but I'm not quite as optimistic as you guys are. So what I want to know is about plan B or if you're thinking about plan B <laughs> and um, th that's <laughs> Good. Um, 
Because what I want to know is, is it possible, or are you guys thinking about multiple strategies when it comes to um, what's going to happen if we can't, um, if, if the different groups that are coming together um, can't, can't come to a common agreement or, um, and, and things start to come into motion and we, we can't all agree? And how can we all work towards a common goal without having to all agree and all, um, you know, all work? Maybe if it doesn't look like we're all working side by side, but we all know what we're doing to try to get to the same goal. Are, are we thinking about those kind of strategies? Are we? Are we? Is it? Is it? Are we thinking about it that strategically? Because, um, because I, I like I said, and in, in, when you're talking about complex issues and stuff starts to hit the fan, and especially when it comes to parenting and motherhood, I just don't know. And then the complex issue that involves so much science and so much and, and things that people can't wrap their head around. And it isn't always the leaders that are um, that are pushing things, right? It starts to come up from the ground. Um, people get crazy. So I, I, I mean, and, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful kind of way. I mean, this is, this is just an issue that people feel really strongly about. So is there a plan B? Just talking about that. Yeah. Um, although we're very optimistic. I mean, I think that the, <laughs> for me, the plan B is embedded in plan A because along the process, I've already learned so much more from other communities that that is being integrated into my thinking. You know, we've got all these bills pending. We've got to be looking at these ballot initiatives that are coming up next year. So we're going to start polling to think about those ballot initiatives, and I am going to, that is going to influence our polling, right? I am not the same person I was two years ago. I'm going to be thinking about other questions, and that's going to influence the way, even if it's still coming just from our community, it's a better poll, hopefully, and a better response to the ballot initiatives. So that, because as you say, I mean, things aren't waiting for us to figure it out. This is a, always going to be this moving process. So um, I think that's where, for me, the hope comes in, that we are getting better as we go. And even if we can't reach consensus, that each of us will, as we come to the issues, um, be, uh, be better at it. So, And then one other thing I wanted to say, I was thinking when Sean was talking about how complicated um, these issues are, that um, that we're the you know reproduction is so overregulated, um, and that and the way that um, regulation happens on women's bodies and on anything that has to do with this area is like so not about women's health. What will be good for us? Understanding the data, um, you know, and and so I know that we tend to sometimes approach it defensively because we think, oh, what is coming now? What what is this policy going to do that in the name of women's health totally undermines it? Um, and so. I think one of our challenges is to say, you know, for us to work together and say what would be good and then how can we get it in light of um, all of the um, horrible dynamics that always are at play with women's health and policy. So just to approach it instead of from a defensive position to, uh, you know, approach it from what would be good for women's health and if we're working together, do we have a better shot at, at actualizing that? Okay. I want to take these two questions together. So go ahead, please. Hi, I'm Barb Kalora. I'm the executive director of Resolve, the National Infertility Association. And Jessica, thank you very much for your um, study. We represent the 7.3 million Americans who are diagnosed with infertility, and it's a disease, and we treat it as such. So I appreciate all the comments that have been made. At the same time, there's a face behind all of the talk, and it's those individuals who cannot have children. And I am one of those people, and I have been through this weird science. Um, it's not new. It's been around for many years. And so um, there are 
hundreds of thousands of people who have used this amazing technology to build their family of their dreams because their bodies wouldn't allow them to do so. So I want to just make sure that we don't forget that in all of these discussions. I just want to make two comments. Um, I very much appreciate the comments about the need for studies and more data. We couldn't agree more. We put together our own list. We would love to be a part of these discussions and um, give you our input on where we think the holes are from the patient perspective because certainly there is a lot that, that is not known that we believe the patients should know about. We also believe there's a lot of data that's needed for policymakers specifically. So we've, again, put together a pretty comprehensive list, and we would love to share that and be a part of this discussion. Lastly, we are very concerned about ballot initiatives like the one in Colorado, and um, we believe that this could um, dramatically harm people's ability to seek this kind of treatment. So again, there are some common ground, and we'd like to be a part of that. Hi, I'm Susanna Baruch from the Genetics and Public Policy Center at Johns Hopkins, and I spend most of my time thinking about reproductive genetics and reproductive genetic testing. We've done uh, a fair amount of public opinion research on people's opinions of different kinds of testing, from prenatal to genetic testing of embryos. And in addition, last year did a survey of IVF clinics to look at their practices with uh, genetic testing of embryos. And one of the things that has always struck me, and that strikes me as I... Um, imagine and commend you for taking this on as a, as a uh, cross-community dialogue, is that both as individuals and as parts of different communities, I think everybody has a point at which they go, ooh, that's just too weird. And it might be a particular fact pattern with a, um, a couple that is trying to get pregnant and, and what they're using and, and who they're employing in order to try to make that happen or... It, for other people, it might be what an embryo is being tested for in the um, search to have a, a healthy child and what healthy means and what's, um, what's, what's not healthy and what's not normal. Um, and, and I think that we've also learned a lot from the disability rights community about how one can talk about these issues and individual choices um, without maybe perpetuating some of the, the stigma that's, that's out there. Um, my question is sort of thinking, thinking in the history of the, of the pro-choice progressive movement, can, have any of you, um, do you feel like you have good models or good examples of times when um, these difficult issues have been grappled with from all these different perspectives and a sort of uh, consensus voice can emerge? Um, and, and because the concern, I think, from... From, from your all's perspective would be the conservative perspective is very good at finding the weak link. And so while you're trying to find the consensus point, there's going to be a ballot initiative on sex selection, and it's not going to just include genetic testing of embryos, it's going to include prenatal testing, or whatever the sort of scenario is that you might want to paint. How do you um, how do you envision avoiding those sort of political difficulties when you are engaging in a very worthy uh, discussion that, that may may take a while. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, what springs to mind uh, for me is not uh, necessarily a model around another issue, but there was, uh, I think, the example in California, the Pro-Choice Alliance for Responsible Research showed, uh, I think, some, you know, hope for uh, groups coming together around 
a common ground area and, and wanting to take a broader perspective and approach to uh, stem cell research and what would happen with women who provide eggs for that research and things like that. Um, it may not necessarily have avoided all of the pitfalls. It may not have included absolutely everyone that we might count as on the progressive side and what they would want to see as the outcome, but ultimately I think it did bring together um, more groups to the table than, than had been in the past. And I think ultimately they, you know, they, they were able to achieve something with that. Um, so that, that's kind of what sprung to mind for me. What sprang to mind to me was that I think the conservatives actually have been much better at this than we, right? And so that in some ways we're taking a play out of their book. Um, and it was interesting that you think that, um, that it would be, that w we're opening ourselves to opportunity for them to use wedge politics because I think in actuality they will have that, they have that opportunity all the time and that this is an, oppor uh, an opportunity for us to remove or to undo those wedges within our progressive communities before uh, the really big stuff can hit. Jackie? I mean, one thing I also just want to add to that is there are different ways of thinking about a consensus point of view. I mean, there's we all get in a room and we come up with a single goal or a single way forward and what we want to accomplish. And then there's also, we come into a room and we recognize that there are a number of different points of view, um, that there are going to be some differences of opinion, but we share a, uh, an ultimate set of goals or principles. And I mean, I think about universal health care and I think about the environmental climate change kind of energy movement. I mean, there are people who think single payer, absolutely. There are people who say single payer is not going to work. But I think, and you know, a range of different ways to get to universal health care, but ultimately the broader community recognizes we've got to set the table to get ourselves to universal coverage, and there are a set of principles that work. I mean, in the environmental movement, there are people, nuclear, no way. Nuclear's got to be a part of it. Coal, no way. Well, we can get to clean coal. Um, and so there are different perspectives, but again, uh, still a larger movement moving towards um, a general set of goals and principles. So I think it's you know, how we also define what a consensus position is. Um, one of the things that I would like to ask you all as we um, bring this to a clo close, you know, picking up on some of uh, what you all have commented on during the Q&A period and the concern about how do we get there, recognizing that the world isn't going to stop while we try and reach a set of goals or principles or a consensus position, I mean, what do you all think are the most important next steps? And what kinds of tools, what kinds of assistance do you all think we need to try and get there, um, recognizing that it, the, the ballot initiatives aren't going to stop, the proposals that may come before Congress aren't going to stop, so we need to, to try and speed, speed things up? A lot of things, I think. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at my board chair sitting in the office, uh, sitting in the audience to see if it's okay to talk about. Um, J Jackie and I are both um, board members of a new organization that's spinning off from the Center for Genetics and Society. Um, it is called Generations Ahead. Um, and we are working in the cross-movement <coughs> dialogues to, to figure out the equitable and the most just solutions uh, to some of the problems that we've outlined here today. And I think the tools that we need are really more of the resources that Jessica has provided. We need more answers. We need more data. 
um, we need this information from uh, the different movements themselves, right, to come up with um, uh, their, their best results after grappling with this issue on their own for a little bit. We need more partners to come to the table. Certainly, um, the infertility industry and the infertility movement uh, is part of it. And uh, we ask that, you know, that we come to this discussion with the social justice framework in mind, right? And so that means that we not only look at that as a whole class, but to understand that there are differences even between our movements, right? And that, for example, black women have higher rates of infertility than white women in this society. And so how do we particularly go and get those authentic voices of those most affected within our own individual communities to, to bring them to the table and to bring them to, to the solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that to me, that is really the right answer. And part of the, we could go through sort of the list of things that are needed around just having people be more comfortable with the technologies. You know, I think um, that the Center for Genetics and Society has done a good job of laying out, creating that sort of a PowerPoint of what are the, what are the 101s that you need to know to even be able to have this conversation. Um, there's some fantastic writings on these issues. Um, that you know, when we did the reproductive justice conference, we gave everybody in that section a series of law reviews and other articles that, from different perspectives, that just like if you read all ten of them, you're like, okay, you know, I can start to grapple a little bit. So I feel like there are some so the 101s in the science, the sort of introductory to what different perspectives are, so that you feel like you can be in a room and have a conversation. And I think you know, we start from the place of your individual interest and stake in this, um, whether it's you, your best friend, your family, whatever, uh, related to this. So what's that going to bring up for you? I mean, it's a little bit of therapy. What's that going to bring up for you? What's going on for your organization? Where are your defensive points? What is going to scare you when you see it? And how do you say, you know, i got to hold someone's hand as we get over this because if I am afraid of it and in defensive, we're just going to continue to lose on this point. We know what doesn't work. We have done it a thousand times. And so one of the things is to learn from our own mistakes and to not be afraid and, and look at what another community may have done and say, well, all right, let's try to go through that together. So, you know, I think it's the basic resources and then it's putting yourself in a room and for folks who um, are in organizations that haven't engaged yet to talk to um, you know, either us who are engaged, um, if you need it, but to get to the point where you can see where your organizational and movement interest is in it. So um, how do we bring the racial justice folks to the table? Um, you know, are, what is their interest in what's going on with genetics and criminalization and the geneticization of race, and not only of medicine, but also of, um, you know, how we're going to cure what, being criminal? You know, like, I mean, that's coming back again. So, like, I feel like people seeing their own interests and then coming to the table for the dialogue to move forward. Yeah, I think that the more toolkits we can uh, create, I think that's starting to happen, uh, kind of the primers that help people get up to speed on these issues, um, the, the PowerPoints and the models that, that uh, people can take back to their organizations to, to educate people within their organizations and within their movements before, you know, as we are at the same time moving forward with these inter-intra-movement inter, conversations. Um, you know, we certainly tried with this paper to provide some resources like the charts and the tables and the graphs and the maps and everything that hopefully will, will make it easier uh, when people are, you know, as, as a reference point, as an opportunity to, to respond to what's happened already. Um, and I think, you know, based on that, we can kind of see 
there are some places where we clearly disagree. For instance, like Jackie mentioned, with the health insurance coverage statutes, um, where there are discriminatory restrictions, what we would see as discriminatory. You know, th that may be e easier to build a little bit of consensus around and say, okay, well, maybe you know, in this state, we want to repeal this section of that law, and that might be something that is a little bit more manageable. It's on the scale of things you know, more bite size. Um, and so maybe we start there and then and then build upon that. Um, but, you know, maybe we also identify the three areas that we think, um, you know, there's just not enough uh, yet and we need, to, we need to start drafting some sort of, you know, model legislation or something like that or engage more with the legal community who has already started. I mean, they've been part of writing these laws. Um, you know that that are that are in existence already. So um, making sure that that we that the different perspectives of the progressive movement are at that table as well. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of areas where there can be activity and engagement, um, and obviously not any one organization is going to be able to do it all, and we're all going to be able to you know contribute to that process. Um, so. Well, with that, it is 10:30. Um, so with the promise that we would end at 10:30, I want to thank the members of the panel and hope you will join me in doing that. And I want to thank all of you for being here and we hope you will come back again and continue to engage with us on this and other topics. So thank you.